That smooth Christian jazz you're hearing means you've tuned in to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm your co-host, Aaron Zimmerman. I'll be joined by Jacob Smith as each week we break down the lectionary readings for the upcoming Sunday to give you something to think about, and if you're a preacher, to give you something to preach about, and no matter who you are, to give you a connection to the never-changing message of God's grace for actual people like you. Unzip that monogrammed faux leather Bible carrying case and cover, pull up a chair, and let's dig in. Jake, for Lent, I have given up the first time we tried to record this episode. <laughs> yes. What about you? Um, well, I am uh, working on not giving anything up at all. I just can't handle any more give-ups. Um, so I'm enjoying my forgiveness. But yes, this is the second time around. So this this episode should be golden. Not purple. I know. Not purple, but golden. So uh, so for our listeners, we recorded this episode first, like, you know, at the beginning of February. And now here we are uh, in the middle of it, re-recording it. It's, uh, it's now snowy in Texas. We're dealing with this polar vortex and, you know, millions of people without power. It is 12 degrees in Waco, Texas right now as I record this. So Jacob Smith can eat my shorts. So here we are. So, but uh, we are the first Sunday of, the, of Lent. And so and, uh, um, here we are. And uh, the readings uh, for today, um, this, it's actually a very powerful day. And typically, do you do any special traditions or special things on the first Sunday of Lent? I know we go through the Great Litany. And so we will uh, process around, socially distanced, of course, uh, we'll process around the sanctuary and recite and pray the Great Litany. Yeah, so we do that as well. Usually it's chanted on the first Sunday in Lent. Of course we we'll chant. The, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> we do a couple of things. So first Sunday in Lent, we recite the Great Litany, which I encourage our listeners to read that on their own and think through it. If you were to be a journaling type, it would be a thing to sort yeah. of look through and journal with each... With each um, specific confession to sort of think through how have I exhibited this in my own life. Um, it's the kind of thing where if you haven't read it before, when you get to it in church and you find yourself saying these words, you're like, holy crap, this prayer book has my number. Like they, but, but it can be worth some, some reflection before. But anyway, so we do the great litany and then the second Sunday in Lent, cause you can't do all the special things in one service. Otherwise it would be too long. Uh, but we, we read the exhortation. We also add the Decalogue the Ten Commandments uh, back in our services. And we either read those or the summary of the law. And we go to write one for all of our services during the mm. season of Lent. But I make sure to tell people it's not because it's like a more penitential service, but it, yeah. it, does, it does bring into high relief the um, severity of human need and the inexhaustible riches of the grace of God. That mm. it just it's a lot clearer in right one. Yeah. You, you it gives language to the dire predicament of uh, the human condition and the uh, extravagant grace of God. Mm. I couldn't agree with you more. I wish well, because you're a smart man. I wish there was a uh, sometimes a more modern language, and I know common worship has it a modern language uh, version of right one. Uh, because the the liturgy and uh, the words are just so rich and uh, really articulate what our epistle is all about when we get there. But so today we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. 
And then we have um, uh, uh, everybody's favorite epistle, except in Waco, Texas, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. And then we have uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. And so we begin uh, with um, Genesis chapter 9, and uh, basically the theme kind of one of the first themes, because Lent is all about uh, being on pilgrimage and, uh, you know, uh, the idea of Israel being in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus being in the wilderness for 40 days, Noah's on an ark for 40 days. Um, the idea, well, he was on there longer than that, but it rained for 40 days. And uh, But the idea there is, is the number 40 is formation. And remember what the liturgy reminds us of is that it's not about you bringing God into his into your story, but God brings you into his story. And uh, and so uh, today, as we enter into that uh, story and into that journey, that pilgrimage on our way to a heavenly country, uh, we are reminded that uh, in the midst of the trials and tribulations of it, we remember the fact that I am baptized. And so all of the readings today kind of revolve around that theme of baptism that uh, we reflect and uh, embrace on our earthly pilgrimage. So we see that in Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. That's right. And it is going to be a little bit out of left field for your congregation. Here they are coming to the first Sunday in Lent, and they're probably not thinking about Noah's Ark and the flood. And it's a story, by the way, that you know most people associate with animals, which is one of the less important things about the story. I mean, it's nice, but it's it just they it's given everybody... By twosies, yeah, twosies, twosies. You remember that song or whatever it was? I cannot get it out of my brain, and I would appreciate if you would not sing it again. But yeah, that story has become just synonymous with nursery decorations. Yes. Uh, but it really is about how awful human beings are to each other, and God's Real mercy. Real quick. In yeah, yeah, they they don't they don't waste any time in in, in getting terrible to each other. The honeymoon is over fast, and so I mean this, Genesis. One and two, like God makes people, and just already by Genesis eight, he's like, "Whoops, gotta start over." <laughs> uh, so, anyways, uh, this story is in here because one of the things we're gonna see in the other readings are that we're gonna talk about baptism, and specifically in First Peter, Saint Peter will mention how Christian baptism is connected to this Noah story. So yeah. the, the Noah story in this Sunday's readings is like a prequel to what, it's like Captain Marvel before you watch, mm. uh, you know, Infinity it's, War or whatever. End so, game, end game. Yeah, yeah so. that's right. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. We're going so. through a, in, in the Snowmageddon in Waco, Texas, we're, we're watching all the Marvel movies right now. So oh, good. I'm, I'm almost I'm done. catching up. I'm, uh, Congratulations. I'm halfway through Ant-Man and the Wasp, just for the record. Uh, so I've been re-watching it myself, getting ready for WandaVision. But, Great uh, Paul yes. Red movie. Yeah, so anyways, it's a prequel. And then in Mark 1, of course, we have Jesus getting baptized. So again, the two New Testament readings are both centered on baptism. So Genesis is in here to kind of give us the, the background for it. But if you, if you were to preach on this, uh, there's absolutely something. If you were to just preach on the Genesis 9 passage, the big idea here is this covenant that God establishes uh, with people and also the kind of God being with Noah through suffering. And the ark has always been seen as a metaphor since the start of Christianity. As a meta the ark is a metaphor for the church. Yeah, Which is absolutely. why church buildings are called... Naves. You know, naves. So the place where everybody sits, where the pews are, that's called the nave. Everybody in the world calls it a sanctuary because they're wrong and they don't understand church architecture and 
I think, again, no, no um, disrespect to my Methodist, Presbyterian, and Baptist brothers and sisters who call the whole church interior the sanctuary. Not true, not faithful to Old Testament understandings of worship space or Christian understandings of worship space. The sanctuary is the part up by the altar, and then everything else is the nave, basically. It's, it's just oversimplifying. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the reason it's called a nave is because it's the boat, and the old churches look like upside-down boats when you're inside them. And the idea is here we are getting through the waters of judgment, the just waters of judgment, if you don't like the idea that God is actually a judge, you have never met a human being. Because human beings, again, are terrible to each other. Have you been on social media? Have you seen what the trolls are saying? Do you know how many people are like nice in real life but are actually secret internet trolls? It's unbelievable how mm. many there are. Um, and so this is what people are like. And so through those waters of judgment, Noah and his family are delivered. And that's a metaphor for the church. It's a metaphor for the grace of God. Yeah. And so that's something you can and talk about on this passage. Yeah, the, the theme there of the water of will never be used again, a flood to destroy the earth. Because this time around, he's going to use fire. The second time around, he'll use fire. But uh, uh, Which was mentioned wa- in season four of Fargo recently, mm. by the way. Not Good. endorsing, just mentioning. <laughs> so, but uh, the idea that, um, here it is, so... The other thing I would hit on is is that, uh, yeah, that which has been used as an instrument of death is now, um, in light of the gospel, used as an instrument of life. And uh, because God has uh, established a covenant with Noah and his descendants, which is all of us, he places a bow in the sky, which is not a rainbow, but an instrument of war. And this time around, that bow is pointed upward at himself. And so, and because he has taken the hit, um, uh, water now, um, this water uh, now, as we'll get to segue to Peter, now saves you. And so it is. And this is one of the reasons why fonts are shaped. Another interesting architectural point, fonts are shaped as octagons to represent the eight people that were saved. Uh, baptismal sometimes, fonts. Yeah, baptismal fonts. Um, th- uh, the one at Calvary is shaped as an arc. So, uh, you know, to, to you know, because this prefigures uh, the point of baptism. Uh uh, water uh, killing and now water being used to bring to life and a water as a symbol of a covenant uh, a covenant uh, sign uh, by which uh god would never destroy but instead we are buried with christ and raised in his resurrection other little sidebar note the second reason for the octagonal shape of the baptismal font is that eight days after birth was when Hebrew male children were circumcised, and baptism is the New Testament um, kind of a sign of the covenant, sign of being in the covenant community. Mm. So those the the um, that's the other that's the other deal there. But it, it, there is so much we should ask Madonna about. This. We should have her on the podcast to talk about Hebraic numerology. A lot of stuff, uh, <laughs> a lot of stuff in there. So yeah, eight people on the ark with Noah. And uh, the sign of that covenant is the bow, the, ra- the bow in the sky. And then, you know, eight days after uh, birth mm. is the circumcision. That's it's the amazing. sign of that covenant. So yeah. all kinds of connections. But it's, I like, don't... It's, like, it's like Fargo. It all connects. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Again, not recommending or endorsing. So, uh, yeah. What do you want to say, Jake? You want to move on to First Peter? You have I something sure else do. To no, say? no. I okay. think I love First Peter, and First uh, Peter, uh, although it's not a popular passage in Waco, Texas, is a yeah. Very... And the reason Jake is saying that, Waco listeners, stick with me here. The reason is that he's he's saying that is because there's a verse in this famous passage in First Peter chapter three, where it says that baptism now saves you. I mean, I didn't say it. 
Peter did. I, I, you know, I'm not endorsing it, but Peter did say it. So I'm just saying. Even though we all know that baptism does nothing. It's just nothing. a symbol. It's just the a symbol. The only thing that matters is when you walk down, just as you are, come down the aisle. <laughs> every eye closed, every head bowed. That's what does it, right, Jake? See, now, for all my New York listeners, you probably don't know what's go- what Darren's talking <laughs> about, but anyway, everybody in Waco does. So, um, uh, but uh, the, the point here is, is that this is a very, very powerful reading, and uh, it begins with, and I love what you said at the last recording of this, the opening, Christ also suffered for sins once for all. The mm-hmm. righteous, not for those who are basically getting it together, not for those who are still holding on to their Lenten fast, Uh, Not for those who are doing their part and trying to make Jesus great again. But uh, Christ suffered sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. And uh, it has a purpose, and that is in order to bring you to God. Not you going to God, but for him to bring you to God. And that is very powerful. And then we have this idea about um, him uh, being put to death in the flesh and traveling down uh, uh, and preaching and, um, uh, you know, to the spirits in prison. Very mysterious, very exciting. But then we come to uh, Noah and uh, what this all prefigured. Uh, Do you want to say anything more about that, Aaron? Yeah, I think, you know, again, your point about Christ suffering for the sins of others, clearly not for his own, there is clear atonement language. The fact that Peter would write this as somebody who was raised in the Jewish tradition, in the Jewish faith, that he would not be thinking about atonement here is bananas. And we were just talking about this, Jake, and it's something that comes up a lot, and atonement uh theory in terms of that is the one of the theories about how does Christ's death and resurrection save us how does it accomplish our redemption and this idea of atonement uh blood sacrifice is one of the main ideas in scripture it gets a bad rap people it's a lot of people think they treat it like triumph the insult comic dog remember that character yeah. on uh Conan when he would say he would say about some people would say this is a great theory for me to poop on. Like, yeah, yeah. they don't, people don't like atonement theory. And uh, I think Jake and I, safe to say, are kind of with uh, St. Fleming Rutledge on this, that um, in her book, The Crucifixion, uh, there are multiple theories of the atonement in the Holy Scriptures, mm-hmm. uh, but you, but atonement is absolutely one of them. And uh, and the, the sort of uh, thoughtful and hopefully open-minded Christian sees all of these in the Scriptures and holds all of them together as opposed to rejecting one or the other. Now, have there been people that have mistaught or misrepresented the theory of the atonement in horrific ways? Yes, but we don't chuck the whole thing. So anyways, all that to say is the key idea here, which I think is so important and so pastoral and so preachable and so existentially powerful and connecting, is this idea of the righteous for the unrighteous. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, um, people people get upset about, again, substitutionary atonement, like how unfair it is. It's like... And I remember Paul Zoll used to always say, wait, why are you upset? Don't you want somebody to be your substitute in like everything in life? Don't you wish somebody could go get a root canal for you? Don't you wish somebody could go to the custody uh, legal um, resolution for you? Don't you wish somebody could um, uh, go to the DMV in your place? Like, um, and don't you wish that, and then here, don't well, you wish somebody could, could There's a could, whole thing of that in New York City. You can actually hire people to stand in line for you. And right. then they text you when you're right behind, like when it's you're up 
and uh, and you can get in line, whether it be for concert tickets or whether it to be see Santa Claus. I mean, it is that we always want someone to stand in our place, and this is right. embedded in our liturgy, especially in Rite One. Uh, I love how it opens up the Eucharistic uh, liturgy in Rite One. All glory be to thee, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, for that thou of thy tender mercy didst give thine only yep. Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made thereby his one oblation of himself once offered a full, full perfect, perfect, sufficient sacrifice, sacrifice oblation, oblation, and, and satisfaction, self satisfaction sorry. for the sins of the whole world. And then yeah. he instituted it in his holy gospel and commanded us to continue. Cranmer's like got his thesaurus. He's like, how many different <laughs> words can I use to say the same thing? Exactly. But yeah, so, I mean, yes, the idea that God substituted Christ in your place sort of as like this divine whipping boy and, you know, Rene Girard and all that sort of stuff, uh, that is not what this doctrine is. Yeah. This is Jesus Christ lovingly offering himself as the second person of the Trinity and really reflecting the heart of the entire Godhead. Um, it's the self-giving, sacrificial love of God who puts others first. That's what divine love looks like. And this is his, his gift to us. Amen. Um, and so, so and yeah. Jesus, this, Jesus is not is a victim. Important. That's right. clear. He's not a victim. Uh, he is, he, as he says in John 10, no one takes my life from me, but I freely I lay, it lay it down so that I may take it up again. But uh, yeah. we come to this part. I don't want to miss this part, though, this very, and baptism, which this prefigured. So he's speaking of Noah and the, the flood. He says, now saves you. Uh, now, what, what, is it, what does he mean by that? Um, wh well, he, what he means is the same thing that St. Paul means, that all of the promises of God are, um, are given to you in that mean, in that mm. water. Um, this isn't magic. These are promises. Uh, this is, uh, this is, th these are promises given to you. And uh, I, I think that's very powerful because I think a lot of American Christianity, uh, whether it be um, on the left or the right, you know what I mean? We in the Episcopal Church, heaven forbid if we're slightly evangelical or anything like that. But, uh, you know, it's, but you're two sides of the same coin, the extreme left and the extreme right. Uh, the two, two, no, no, they're different sides of the same coin, excuse me. But uh, the point is, is that it's this dismantling of the sacraments and that American religion and American Christianity is always about going within and how are you feeling and what are you doing and uh, what's going on with you. And um, it just it creates a, a hot pot of pressure that um, causes all sorts of craziness. But real Christianity is about pulling yourself up outside of you. And so when you are feeling discouraged, when you're feeling lost, this is the point of St. Paul. Don't go in and look at what you're doing, but look to your baptism, not mm -hmm. as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Why? Because it's in those waters that uh, Christ has marked you and claimed you as his own. Um, he sealed you with the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked you as his own. And so this is very good. So you look to that and you know that, man, in that water, Christ has risen from me. He's gone to the right hand of God the Father, which essentially means that he is the Lord himself, with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. Yep. And that's good news. Yeah, and so that's exactly right. And here, here's the thing. Um, there, there. You're right, Jake, to say that there are some Christians who it feels to them like some weird magic 
trick for Peter to say baptism saves you? Like, what is this, some sort of magic water that we pour on people that does some sort of magic trick? And they get really resistant to this idea that water would actually do something because we like feeling that what actually makes the formula work is our own will, our own choice. Me letting Jesus into Mm. my heart is the key in the lock that forces God's hand. I did it. Um... Uh, as Madonna sang in that music video, um, "Open your heart to me." Uh, I hold the lock. <laughs> Darling, you hold the key. yeah, yeah, really creepy video. But anyways, the the thing here. Oh my god, is that, that, that is, is a good. That's so good. That is a good <laughs> illustration. Everybody, Google that and and preach. Use that as your illustration. So, so uh, it is a great song. So the the thing about. That way of thinking, as you said, the problem is if it if your salvation is dependent on how sincere you were and how genuine you were in your feeling towards Jesus when you accepted Him into your heart, um, you're, you will question your salvation because your feelings will wax and wane uh, when you and you will come to a point of despair, quite possibly. The idea here in baptism that it is not based on your feelings. Your feelings are not the key in the lock. What does the work here is the Holy Spirit through the physical matter of water. And to the people who get upset about God working through physical things, I find that so hypocritical because we as human beings always think that there's some sort of significant substance to matter. And I'll I'll give you an example. Love locks. Hmm. People in bridges all over the world confess their love to one another, write their initials with a sharpie on a little lock and hang it on a fence on a bridge. Go to Paris. They have to cut them off every few years because yeah, it gets too heavy. Here in Brooklyn, people too. Think, yeah, people think that, that like a physical, tangible sign, people put immense significance and meaning into. Um, again, another example, a wedding ring. You know, it's always a big deal after the divorce when somebody finally stops wearing the wedding ring or in a fight, like, thro- takes it off and chucks it at somebody because these things actually matter. We, in so many areas of life, we think physical stuff matters. And then in baptism, we're like, well, I don't know. It's just water. It's like, are you kidding me? Like, uh, you're going to say some little master lock you bought at a CVS and put on a bridge in Brooklyn is, like, more significant than water? So all that to say is if we believe that God can work through stuff, which we do because we believe in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was nothing else if not stuff. He was made of carbon and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and all those different things inside of his body. And uh, there's no f- difference in matter from that and water. I mean, water Amen. is... I mean, Jesus was mostly water. So if we believe that God worked <laughs> through Jesus, we absolutely can believe he can work through the waters of baptism. Amen. And the good news about this is your baptism is a fact. It happened. So Mm. whether you wake up today feeling like your faith is strong, or you wake up today feeling like your faith is weak, your baptism happened, just like the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ happened. And this is what saves you. And Jake, I love it when when you have said in the past, people ask you when you were saved, and you're like, 2,000 years ago on a hill outside Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Because that's so much more substantial and uh, concrete than how I feel about Jesus today. Mm. Absolutely. rant. And I, I, I mean, I think that that's a, you know, I have a talking to a colleague one time, and he's got a, an, uh, like a late teenage daughter who came in and professed that she uh, was an atheist and no longer a Christian, and uh, he looked at her and he was like, "No, you're still a Christian because I baptized you," <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like you know, there it is, and so. Those uh, promises have been given to her and they can't be taken away. And, uh, you know, and when you are baptized, as it says here in our gospel reading, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 15, perfect segue. 
he uh, he is. So these two readings are attached, you know, so so every first Sunday of Lent, you have some reading of Jesus in the wilderness. But Mark's gospel is really powerful. It begins because it's the first chapter is just like, bam, bam, bam. He's baptized. He's in the wilderness. And then he's off casting out demons, you know, and preaching repentance. Um, but here, the reason why these two are connected is because we too are on uh, a wilderness journey. I mean, you know, we have come up out of the water and have been thrust into the wilderness of the world, into the not yet. And uh, when you go through the not yet, you need to know, uh, that's why our slogan is, I am baptized. Uh, not, I made a personal decision, <laughs> but I am baptized. Because it's in those waters. See, Jesus, and this is one of the themes of Mark's gospel, is that he's so clean that he uh -huh. makes dirty things clean. When my hand is full of mud and I touch white silk, I make the silk dirty. The silk doesn't make me clean. But Jesus... But Jesus is the silk that makes uh, your dirty hand silky smooth, <laughs> removes all of the calluses, and reminds ah. you that you only handle chalices. So, but, uh, um, but he comes up out of that water, and he hears declared by the Spirit, you are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. And then he's immediately driven out into the wilderness, and you see the other gospel writers, they remind you of the temptations and him being forced to face Satan in the wilderness. And, uh, and uh, for 40 days, but, uh, you know... Uh, he helped. Mm. You got to know who mm -hmm. you are in the wilderness and who you are isn't a decision you made. The gospel says who you are is the mm. decision God made about you. And uh, that is you are my son, the beloved. And with you, I am well pleased. Sure. Say daughter too. That's great. But the reason why specifically son is this is Roman language about inheritance. And what you are inheriting is all of God's mercy, all of his grace, all of his love, his promises to you that cannot be taken away. And so when you face Satan, uh, you can uh, not appeal to yourself, but you can appeal to a Jesus in whom you also That's are right. God's well-beloved son. Yeah, and, and that uh, well with whom God is so well great because we're so used to pleased being given as an evaluation of past performance. You have done a good job and therefore I will grade you highly. Mm. And this is before Jesus has done anything in his ministry, <laughs> and it's just so beautiful to have done nothing and to hear that the attitude of God the Father to God the Son is well-pleased. That is an unchanging relationship. That's always how it is. And it's the same words that your congregation yeah. just heard in the reading that uh, depicted the transfiguration on Mount Carmel the Sunday before Lent 1, so the last Sunday after the Epiphany was... Listen to my son. This, you know, listen. This is my son. Listen to him. My son, the beloved. Listen to him. And so, this this beloved language, this well pleased language, this is consistent throughout the Gospels. And this is just the attitude of the Father to the Son, and honestly, the Son to the Father. And this is the That's relationship right. that we get to have with God through the Son to the Father. And it's it's the same deal. And this is why Jesus ends this passage by saying repent and believe in the good news. You're repenting from a system where you're being thought of as well, of well pleased, or like you being, getting that judgment of being kind of good enough comes from performance. Repent from that way of thinking and come over to this way of thinking where before you do anything, you are beloved and God says, well pleased, just because of who God is. Yeah. 
I love it. It's not, you are my son, the beloved, and with <laughs> you I'm kind of enduring to the yeah. end. I'm putting up with your horse crap for a little bit longer. That's not the case. It is, I am, that's how we think God is. But the truth is, is he is well pleased with you. And I love that, uh, you know, because when we have a vision of God uh, that is, I'm enduring you, well, uh, time is always passing us by. Uh, time, uh, we're, we're always late, we're always early, we're missing the mark all the time. Uh, but uh, because you are a beloved son, um, uh, in the good news of Jesus, the time is fulfilled. You're right where you need to be, and he's got you, and he'll never leave you or forsake you in the midst of this Lenten pilgrimage and in the midst of the pilgrimage called life until you see him face to face, uh, where you will no longer um, have to simply trust, but you will hear personally, you are my son, the beloved, and with you I'm well pleased. Yeah, and I, and I just want to add a little P.S. to preachers out there. I would encourage you uh, that you yeah. don't talk or don't talk very much about Lenten disciplines in your sermons. Uh, I mm, would love for you to talk. You. <laughs> no Richard, no yeah, Richard talk Foster about him here. At the coffee hour, if you have one, talk about him in Sunday school. If you're able to do that, talk about him in your midweek Bible study if you want. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm more gracious out. than Jake. Jake's still working on yeah. his. Uh, his his heart. Um, I know. But um, actually, I was I was wounded by that book. So anyway, but I just could never add up. Yeah, and and I I was too. It definitely yeah. There's definitely the the idea that the soul is like a muscle, and you just, if you just exercise, you can strengthen it. I think that is Flex faulty Aristotelian thinking, and does not really bear the weight of human experience. But that's a conversation for another time. The thing I again, everybody, what they know about Lent is fish on Friday, giving up chocolate dieting mm -hmm. like this is what people think lent is about and i would love for you to have a sunday school class or some sort of formation opportunity where you talk about what a what a true spiritual discipline is where it is um you know uh giving things up so that you can serve others and so you can pray more that sort of thing it's and it's not to build up the ego it's actually to to lessen the ego's grasp on you but that's another conversation i think that the the if people come away from your sermon thinking that the preacher has just given me another thing to do to make God happy, that will have the opposite effect that you intend. If they leave your sermon feeling like they have heard for themselves the words which Jesus hears here, beloved, with you I'm well pleased, that will actually create a heart that, um, to quote John Wesley, is strangely warmed. That will create a heart that is... Um, um, more open to the work of God's Spirit in his or her life and to then live out this call. So anyways, let the sermon, because again, most of life is judgment, most of life is demand, most of life is try harder to do better, and the sermon is the one place this week where they won't hear that. So make Lent about a message of grace. That's all I would say Amen. for folks, and I know you're shocked to hear us say that, but uh, but there it is. Absolutely. That's a really good place to leave, Aaron. Thank you for that, and uh God bless everybody and uh, have a happy and holy Lent. Somebody's looking, somebody cares. Somebody wonders what you're doing today. You know, we crucified him, buried him, but three days later, well, the stone got rolled away. And yes, Thanks for listening to Same Old Song. Hope you found some gospel nuggets for the pulpit or for your life. If you like what you heard, leave a review or rating in Apple Podcasts. Dave Zoll will be sad if you don't. 
Thanks to TJ Hester for audio production. And remember to keep that Bible by your bedside, ready to rock and roll.